Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. There are over 700,000 sexual offenders in the United States alone. With all the social media these days, how can we protect ourselves and our children from these despicable predators? Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where we discuss criminal cases that involve some factor of abuse. Our goal is to spread awareness of abuse that could be taking place around any of us and encourage everyone to take responsibility and report if they see a child or an adult being abused. J.C. Lee Dugard went missing after being abducted on her way to the bus stop, right in front of her family's home. For 18 years, her family, along with law enforcement, searched for her, with no results. The community came together and did everything they could to help find this girl, who was only 11 years old when she disappeared. They knew she had been abducted because her stepfather, Carl, had seen the whole thing. But 18 years passed, and there was still no sign of J.C. But then, a strange man walked into a law enforcement office with two little girls. The demeanor of these little girls rubbed some people the wrong way. Allie Jacobs and Lisa Campbell were two police officers that made an effort to look into this, and that got the ball rolling on an investigation that would finally lead to the rescue of J.C. Lee Dugard. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. I'm Rosie. And I'm Ryan. How are you doing tonight? <laughs> I'm good. I had a strenuous day, but I'm good. Well, I'm glad that you're home now. Thanks. Rosie had to, uh, her job has gotten a little harder lately. Yeah, they got a puppy, which I've never had, and now I never will. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of, uh poop in the wrong places lots of poop lots of pee lots of nipping and biting and chewing and dragging and dragging and um yeah just not for me i'm really Uh, content with my cats did Um, you want a glass of wine before we start (laughs) okay (laughs) okay how are you ryan i well i woke up in the middle of a dream and you know how it is when you wake up in a jolt? My alarm clock went off, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like right in the middle of a dream. And so <laughs> I was jolted awake, and I've been kind of off all day, but we're going to get through this because we care about you guys and the show, and we really appreciate all of you that listen. And we really appreciate all of our patrons that have stuck with us month after month and keep supporting us. You guys are amazing. and Oh, speaking of which, Shannon... Will you check your Patreon messages? Thanks. To all of our patrons, if you haven't received something in the mail from us yet, let us know, unless you didn't want it, but let us know if you're still waiting on that. Sometimes stuff gets lost. Mm -hmm. Um, We're just trying to make sure everything's organized and that we're doing our jobs right. We're also starting to wait a month or two before we send out stuff because we've had having a slight problem with people dipping out really quick after they sign up (laughs) yeah and we've been losing some money yeah sending out stuff before we get we've covered the cost so anyway we're gonna jump back into jc lee dugard's story Mm -hmm. this week we're gonna be talking about her point of view on the whole story and Uh, what she experienced. Which is what we should be talking about anyway. Yeah. Well, last week we kind of discussed the experience of her family Mm -hmm. not knowing what was happening and law enforcement's process, and then the past of the man who was responsible for all of this. So if you haven't heard part one, definitely go back and listen to that first. But without any more rambling, Rosie, let's jump into it. All right. The morning of the abduction, J.C. walked out the door of the family's home. Her stepdad, Carl, was in the garage, and she yelled to him that she was about to walk up the hill on the way to her bus stop. She crossed at the spot where Carl had told her to, so oncoming oncoming traffic could see her better. As she walked in the gravelly shoulder of the road, she began to daydream about the summer vacation that was coming soon. 
It was almost the last week of school. Yeah, and uh, her school actually had a water park field trip planned that last week. And at this time, she was really nervous about it because she was a super self-conscious girl, especially about her body. And she was hoping to talk to her mom about shaving her legs and armpits because she was embarrassed about um, her new hair. Um, But she was even too nervous to bring it up to her mom. She actually went into her mom's bedroom to talk about it, but couldn't work up the nerve to bring it up. So this really shows how self-conscious of an 11-year-old she really was. Yeah, that's kind of sweet. (laughs) I forgot about not shaving. (laughs) (laughs) As JC walked toward the bus stop, she heard a car coming up behind her. Mm -hmm. And this was strange because... There weren't typically cars going by on that street at the time she walked to the bus. J.C. looked back at the car, expecting it to pass, but it actually pulled up beside her. The driver rolled down the window, and J.C. stopped walking. He leaned out of the window to ask her for directions. Oh, no. Stranger danger. J.C. noticed his hand shoot out of the window with a little black device in it. Suddenly, she heard a crackling sound and fell backwards. Yeah, he tased her. She fell to the ground and tried to scoot into the bushes behind her, but she was losing control of her body. The man got out of the car and walked towards J.C. She kept trying to scoot away, but her entire body was becoming paralyzed. She grabbed at the ground, trying to find something to hold on to, but all she could grab was a pine cone. The man tried to drag her out of the bushes, but it wasn't working too well, so he tased her again. And at this point, she's wondering why her body wasn't working. She was trying to get away, but she couldn't. And she even peed her pants. But at the time, she didn't really care because she just wanted to get away from this man. The man picked her up and shoved her into the back seat of his car and down to the floorboards. He threw a blanket on top of her and piled stuff on top of it to weigh her down. Then he started driving. So at this point, she's feeling scared and helpless. And, I mean, she was super hot underneath the blankets, but she couldn't move. Between the heat and the movement of the car, she really started to feel sick and dizzy. Oh, I can't. can't. I was just going to say, I can't imagine the feeling of stuff on top of me and it being dark. That would freak me out. Oh, yeah, your claustrophobia. And, yeah, I mean, I get so car sick even when I'm in control of the situation. This had to be such a nightmare, having no idea who the heck you're with or where they're taking you, and having no way to get out from under this hot blanket. Mm-hmm. J.C. began to feel like she needed to throw up, but she fought it out of fear, and she choked down her own vomit. Uh, so remember, she's in a really uncomfortable position here, and if she did throw up, it would just get all over her and uh, yeah, might even choke on it. All she could think about was getting this hot blanket off. Eventually, her body couldn't take it anymore, and she lost consciousness. Eventually, the car stopped, and she came to. She heard a man and a woman talking, and the weight was taken off of her. Then they pulled the blanket off of her face, and they offered her a drink. The man told her he'd gotten an extra straw for her, so she didn't need to worry about germs. Yeah, and considering the things he would end up doing... This seems like a really strange time to be considerate. That's so weird. As she sipped the drink, the man started laughing and said he couldn't believe he'd gotten away with it. So, obviously, if you listen to last week, this man's name is Philip Garrido. Philip grabbed JC in the backseat of the car and told her he had two big, aggressive dogs, and if she wasn't quiet, they would hurt her. He covered her head with a blanket and led her into his house. Once they were inside, he took the blanket off her head and told her to sit on a wicker sofa. Which sounds really uncomfortable, but this is when she finally got a good look at Philip. He was a tall, tan man with blue eyes, brown, thinning hair. It's interesting what her thoughts were at this point about him, that he just looked like a normal guy you'd see every day. He didn't look like a bad guy that you should be suspicious of. And that's the scary thing, is these monsters are just normal-looking people. 
After this, he shows her his stun gun and warns her that if she tries to get away, he'd be using it on her. He had her follow him, and at this point, she's realizing that she has no choice but to comply with him. Yeah, she had no idea where she was. And at this point, even though she had her issues with her stepdad Carl's criticism, she was wishing she could hear it. She was craving anything familiar, anything she'd get from being at home. He took her to the bathroom and locked the door behind the two of them. The shower was already running, and he told JC to take off her clothes. Now, remember how we talked about how self-conscious she was? Being told to disrobe by this strange man had to be completely mortifying for her, on top of all the other stress. She was afraid just to be in a swimsuit in front of her peers, but this? This is a billion times worse. Yeah, it would be mortifying to, like, an adult. Yeah. <laughs> Let alone a child. Uh, no kidding. She refused to take her clothes off. JC was shaking and too scared to do anything. So he grabbed her pants and pulled them down, then took off her shirt. So she was standing in front of this strange, evil man that just kidnapped her, and she's completely exposed and vulnerable. He took all of her clothes, shoes, backpack, and stuffed it in a bag to get rid of the evidence. Yeah. Then, to make things even worse, he took off his own clothes. JC looked away because she knew it was wrong. He asked her if she'd ever seen a naked man before, which she hadn't. Then he told her to look at him. She glanced quickly at him. Yeah, she actually smirked when she saw him and wanted to start laughing because apparently she thought his parts were pretty funny looking. Is that what she said in the book? Yeah. That's pretty funny. But then he asked her to touch it and then told her to make it grow. Yeah, she's 11 years old. She has no idea what this even means. She was a very sheltered child, so she didn't... I mean, I guess some 11-year-olds would know what this means, but she didn't. Mm -hmm. And she tries to comply, and she touches him. And in her book, she described it as small. I mean, it is fun to make fun of monsters like this when... When you, yeah, yeah, you get the trump card to do whatever you want to say uh-huh. or whatever you want to write. <laughs> uh, eventually, he said that that was enough and told her to get into the shower. She didn't want to, and she tried to fight it, but he pushed her in and got in with her. He asked her if she'd ever shaved her underarms and vagina before, and she hadn't because she's 11. Yeah, and remember, in the beginning, she wanted to, but was too nervous to even talk to her mom about it. So it's so sad that this is the way it ended up happening for this poor little girl. Ugh, Philip shaved him, shaved her himself. Which had to be just... That's so gross. I can't even imagine what that would be like for a little kid. Yeah, it's the worst experience. And it's a terrifying thing to have, like, a razor there. And it's not you shaving. Yeah, I just, like, when she's not even yeah, in control of it. Out. That's really gross. He finished shaving her and said that she could get out of the shower. Tears were streaming down her cheeks, even though she was too scared to actually start visibly crying in front of him. She felt like she was trapped in a nightmare. Finally, the man handed her a towel so she could cover herself up. The silent tears turned into giant sobs. Yeah, imagine the amount of stress and trauma she was feeling at this point. Not only was he physically abusing her, but he had stolen her from her family and from her life. Philip actually took her in his arms to offer comfort. She obviously didn't want to take comfort from this monster, but there was no one else there. No one else could comfort her, so she reluctantly leaned into him and sobbed uncontrollably. Yeah, she described it like a rabbit being comforted by a lion. Wow, that's a really good metaphor. I like that. After she calmed down, he told her he was going to take her somewhere, but she had to be very quiet or she'd get into big trouble. She asked if she could put her clothes back on. He just laughed at her and told her no. What a freaking jerk. At least give her some dignity. J.C. started asking him when she could go home, and he told her he didn't know, but he'd work on it. 
As they walked, J.C. told him her family didn't have much money, but they'd be willing to pay a ransom for her. Yeah, she was so desperate to get away from this guy as soon as she could. She had no idea all the years of abuse that laid in front of her. But it is really heartwarming to know at least she was confident in her mother's love for her. Um, confident enough that she was sure they would pay a ransom for her. I mean, I think it's special when you're positive that your parents love you enough to make that kind of sacrifice for you, you know? Mm-hmm. Philip led J.C. down the stairs to the porch and put the blanket over her head as they went outside. All she was wearing was the towel and the blanket. As they walked outside, she heard a train and made a mental note of it, so when she got away, she could say that she was held at a place near train tracks. They walked through a couple of doors, and he finally took the blanket off her head. They were in a small room, with blankets scattered all over the floor. At this point, J.C.'s entire body was shaking uncontrollably. Phil said he'd be back later, and reminds her that the dogs would get her if she tried to escape. Then, he put fuzzy handcuffs on her, with her hands behind her back, and lays her down on her side. Gross. Gross, gross, gross. Just... Take a second to imagine being stuck in that position and having no idea how long you'll have to be laying like that. Like, just laying on your side with your hands behind your back, not cuffed up, would hurt. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like one of the most uncomfortable ways to lay. Ugh. He left her laying there and locked the door behind him. She started crying again, and she was completely exhausted, so she cried herself to sleep. So this is just day one. She'd gotten up that morning in her own bed, planning on going to school just like any other day. But then all of this happened, and now she's handcuffed laying on the floor of a shed, having no idea where she actually is. Not to mention that he completely violated her, touching her and making her touch him. And It's just day one. It's a nightmare. The next day, J.C. was worrying about all the things that she was supposed to do the day that she was taken. All the people she felt like she was letting down by not being around. Yeah, it's sweet of her to be thinking about how her abduction was affecting other people. The room she was in was tiny. Her own bed back at home wouldn't have even fit in the room. Yeah, so that gives some perspective. Just how small. Yeah. If you've seen the movie Room... Even that room was probably bigger than the one J.C. was dumped into. The windows in the room were covered with towels, so there was no light coming in. And the room was getting really hot. Yeah, she was sweating a lot and also super thirsty because she didn't have access to drinking water whenever she needed it anymore. This part would do me in. I don't think (laughs) I could go one waking hour without water. He's not even exaggerating. (laughs) Yeah, and she has no idea at this point when she she will get water. Philip finally came in later that day to give her fast food and a soda. While he was in there, he'd take off the handcuffs so she could eat. He also brought a bucket in with him. He told her to use it if she had to relieve herself. When he'd leave, he'd put the cuffs back on her. It's sad, but he was trying to break her. She'd actually looked forward to him coming in after this because it meant she'd get her cuffs off. Yuck. That, how is she supposed to use the bathroom with the bucket with those cuffs on? I mean, it, well, it's he, doable, I think but... she, he made her do it while he was in there. Oh, He'd take I the see. cuffs off. And Got then... it. I thought it was, like, later, but that makes more sense. Ugh. He would try to make her laugh by doing silly accents. Oh, gag. That's so... Upsetting. He was manipulating her feelings to make her more compliant, and she had no choice but to give in. Yeah. I mean, she was dependent on him for food, water, and her toilet. He was the only human contact she had, and her only source of amusement. Just imagine how boring it would be to sit in a tiny room all day, handcuffed. Just saying it, it doesn't sound as bad as it is. But... Just try to sit for one hour and not do anything. It's really tough. I don't think I could sit for an hour and not do anything. No, you couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) About a week into her captivity is when things really took a dark turn for Jay-Z. That day, she heard his footsteps approaching the room, then the lock rattle on her door. 
and she knew that he was coming in to feed her. Up to this point, he had just been treating her like his little pet. But of course, he had a bigger reason than that to be holding her captive. He walked in, holding a milkshake. He crouches down, but before handing her the milkshake, he tells her that today is going to be a little different. He tells her she can have the milkshake and something to eat after they are done. And I'm thinking, why would you bring the milkshake in at this point instead of the food? Like, if you wait too long, the milkshake's going to melt and get all gross. I don't think he was thinking about that. Yeah, I guess that's not really an issue at this point in the story, but I'm just trying to lighten things up by insulting his intelligence before we get into some really dark stuff. Which reminds me, listener discretion is advised for this next part. It's about to get really disturbing, so know you've been warned, and if you don't want to hear about sexual child abuse, you skip ahead like a minute. Philip put the milkshake down on the shelf. Then he bent down to tell J.C. to take off her towel and lay back down on the pallet that she was using as a bed. Yeah, she's still only allowed to wear a towel at this point. No clothes. Philip removed the cuffs from one of her wrists and relocked them with her hands in front so she could lay back. And this was probably her first time laying on her back for a whole week. It's probably the most comfortable she'd been. And she most likely just wanted to relax and fall asleep in an actually comfortable position. But sadly, it got much worse. Philip sat down on the pallet next to her and explained his plan. Then he stood up and started to take off all of his clothes. And J.C. started panicking and flipping out after hearing what his plan was. At this point, her idea of sex was Barbie and Ken laying next to each other. She was only 11, and that's what she thought sex was. J.C. started crying as he took her handcuffed hands and held them over her head. Then he laid on top of her. Yeah, he was a tall man and really heavy, so it's already uncomfortable for her. He told her it would go quicker if she didn't struggle. Otherwise, he wasn't afraid to get rough with her. Then he forced her legs apart and forced himself inside of her. Oh, that's... She's 11. Like, this is so messed up. So terrible. Again... She had no idea what sex was. She didn't know what to expect. And then suddenly she has this nasty, sweaty, gross man on top of her raping her. She felt like she was being torn apart by him, and it hurt, obviously, a lot for her. Yeah. Like like you said, she's 11. Obviously not ready to be experiencing this kind of physical trauma. She tried to scoot away, and she tried to close her legs but he was a lot stronger than her and easily overpowered her struggling. He finally finished and got off of her. He asked if she was okay. In her mind, she's screaming, No, I'm not okay. Get off of me. He told her next time would be easier if she didn't fight it. Then JC noticed that she was bleeding. He told her that it was normal and went to get her a washcloth and a bucket of water. Oh my god, this man is literal scum. Yeah, and as we go on, his attitude is disgusting too. He just thinks he's always in the right and he did nothing wrong and no one else should know about this. He's just a a total punchable person. Punchable person. Let's put that on a (laughs) t-shirt. So now... Just imagine the dread she was feeling, knowing that this is what he had in store for her. This is what her life in the visible future was going to be like until she could find a way out. And also throughout her time in captivity, the bucket of water was all he would give her to clean up. She never really got real showers, just a nasty bucket of water. After this horrific event, she completely lost her appetite and didn't even touch the milkshake. It was bringing a lot of ants into the room, which were crawling all over J.C. Ugh, gross. It was making her uncomfortable, and they were even getting into her mouth. Yuck. That's so... icky. She said they were, like, spicy and nasty. 
I wouldn't eat that milkshake either. No. I mean, that it was such a rude awakening, such an unexpected thing for her. And I can, I mean, you know that sinking feeling you get when, like, something really bad happens? The last thing I would want would be a milkshake. Yeah. I think I'd want a breath mint. Uh, you know? Or a shower. Yeah. A real shower. Yeah. As the time went by, there were more big events. She got a cat not long after this, who she named Tigger, because Tigger was from Winnie the Pooh, and he was always happy and never sad. That's so depressing to me. I know. And this was before the Tigger movie came out, because Tigger was super sad in that movie. He was? Yeah, because he couldn't find his family. Sad. I know. (laughs) Thinking about that movie makes me sad right now. (laughs) <laughs> have some deep-seated connections to the plot. Oh my Anyway, gosh. again, I'm just trying to lighten things up during this dark, terrible story. <laughs> Sadly, JC didn't have Tigger for very long. At some point, Philip came in the room and said he couldn't stand the smell in the room because the cat was peeing in there. And as sad as JC was to say goodbye to Tigger... She knew the room was a terrible environment for a cat and that it should be able to run around and play. Mm, but so innocent and sweet of her. I know. She feels pity for the cat in the situation, even though she's a person locked in this tiny room. It's a terrible environment for her, too, but she still had room for empathy for the cat, you know? Mm. She's a lot like you, Rosie. She Aww. had mentioned in her book that she loved animals more than she loved people. <laughs> That is true. <laughs> <laughs> they always love you unconditionally. Oh. They're so sweet. Thank you. I do love animals more than I love people. <laughs> Another day, Philip entered the little room with a flashlight. JC knew he was there, but she pretended to be asleep because she was so sick of what he'd do to her. But he shook her shoulder, and she had no choice but to get up. He said that they were going to move next door telling her to be really quiet. He put the blanket over her head again so she couldn't see, and they went out the door. About ten steps from that door, they entered another room. This one was bigger and had air conditioning. The windows had iron bars, which he covered with towels. He locked the doors and turned on the lights. So, JC's wondering what's gonna happen here. This was the first of many runs he would do, where he gets super high smoking meth, and then sexually abused J.C. for days on end. Yeah, this is kind of a callback to what he did to Katie Calloway, what we talked about last week. It's just, you know, a bunch. he'd do a bunch of drugs, and then he'd abuse. I mean, that's what he did to her, is abuse her for hours. Mm. And so now he's got this person that he's holding captive that he can do it to whenever he wants. But he was so narcissistic about everything. He truly thought he was so special, and he told her that he really amazes himself by how much crank he could take at a time. Crank? Cocaine. Or actually, no, it's meth. I've never Uh heard of that before. Not that I really know what the difference is, but he said it didn't affect him as much as a normal person. And it's like, who cares? (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. Like, why would JC care about that? And it makes sense, because... He was diagnosed with ADD, and Adderall is basically pharmaceutical meth, so anybody with ADD would probably have the same tolerance as him. But he thinks he's super special. He's just so narcissistic, and it bugs the crap out of me. During these runs, he would make her dress in really provocative adult woman outfits. Then he would make her dance for him while he pleasured himself. He would do all kinds of horrible things to her. Yuck. Yeah, and he even played himself as the victim, telling J.C. that he had a sex problem that he couldn't get rid of, and he took J.C. to help him so he wouldn't bother anyone else with his quote-unquote problem. And he told her that by giving her this, or by giving him this outlet, she was saving others. Oh my gosh. And he's that, got mm. such a backwards grasp on reality and just doesn't take any responsibility for anything. It's like he's the one suffering, and he's saving other girls by doing this to JC. He's just saying that 
to make himself feel better about what he's doing. Yeah. I don't know if he really believes that. <sighs> Every time he would do something bad, he would tell JC that the angels made him do it. What? Yeah, that was one of his things, is blaming the angels for influencing him, like, in a bad way. <laughs> okay. Apparently nothing was ever his own fault. He also told JC that one day, his music was going to make him super famous and rich, and then they'd all be living a good life. <laughs> wow. What That's an idiot. quite the dream. Another funny thing that she mentioned in her book was that he said um, he didn't need a studio because he could do all the mixing and mastering himself, mm -hmm. which... You know, that's possible, but it probably made his music a lot worse. <laughs> Later on, the rapes started getting more and more violent. He would yell profanities at her while he raped her and push her face down into the couch. He'd call her a whore and the C-word, just degrading her for his own personal gain. Yeah, but this whole time, once he's done with his weird fantasies, he'll pretend to be all nice and sweet and say the angels are making him do it. He's so manipulative and hypocritical because, like, once he's done with this crap, he's trying to make himself seem like a reasonable, nice person and get her on his side. Why wouldn't he say that the demons were doing, making him do it? Why did he? Because he saw himself as, like, a godly man with, huh. I mean, he was super into the Bible at times. and You would think that if he was into the Bible, then he would say the demons were making him do the bad things. Well, but. apparently he found stuff in the Bible that justified his actions. Right. Okay. Every time he would do it, it would really hurt for JC. One of the times he finished and asked her if she was okay, and she just burst into tears. And again, he offered her that disgustingly fake comfort. Yeah, in reality, he's just comforting himself trying to keep her quiet so he can keep doing these terrible fantasies and probably make himself feel better. Mm -hmm. Eventually, she got her period, and at first he just gave her paper towels to stuff in her pants, which would not work. No. Nah. That is not a solution. Later on, Philip tells JC he wants her to meet someone. He introduces her to Nancy, his wife. He said that Nancy was a little jealous of JC, but that she would come around if JC was good and made an effort. <laughs> if she made an effort to do what? Yeah, this also blew JC's mind because she thought marriage mates were loyal to each other. I mean, every idea she had of marriage from before she was kidnapped was that, you know, loyalty. Mm -hmm. And she couldn't believe Nancy was okay with this. But right. we remember... Nancy helped him kidnap her. True. Yeah, that's insane. On one of JC's birthdays, Phil came in and said they had a surprise for her and had her close her eyes. When he told her to open them, it was just Nancy sitting on the bed. JC looked around awkwardly, hoping to find a present, but she couldn't find anything. Then Phil said, Look at Nancy's hair. And Nancy yelled, Surprise! Nancy's hair had new highlights with red streaks. So this was their surprise for JC? What? Why the heck would JC care about this? It just really shows how self-centered and narcissistic both of these people are. They think that some new hair color can be framed as a birthday surprise for JC. I'm sure that was just a stupid... I don't know, something that they just got off on for being mean. That, that doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous, but when I was listening to the book, I was relieved that it was a hair, because at first I was like, yeah. oh my god, they're going to make hair her do a three-wit. With, yeah. yeah. This is a Cody Posey story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. But still, it doesn't make any of this any better. One day, Nancy came into JC's room and told her Phil went to live on an island with his rich friend for a month. That's so random. <laughs> Well, Late. she kind of spun that out of nowhere. Yeah. Later on, JC found out he was serving time in jail for violating his parole. <laughs> Why wouldn't she just make something a little bit more realistic up? Like, he went to visit his mom. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she was 100%, uh, you know, there. there. <laughs> After coming home, Philip told JC that he was reading the Bible now, 
and God was helping him with his problem. <laughs> At this point, the runs got shorter, and he quit taking drugs for a while. It seemed like he began to lose interest in Jigsy at this point, and he didn't even rape her as much. Her typical day was really boring. She would wake up, watch the Today Show, play Super Mario Brothers, take a nap, and hope it's dinner time when she wakes up. Yeah, she was so bored. Now she's just being held captive for pretty much no reason. And I feel like some people will be like, oh, I guess that's not so bad. But think about it. Oh, if you you say that, just go away. (laughs) You're like locked in a room. You have nothing to do except for wait for this monster to come and visit you and maybe rape you during any of his visits. Yeah. And your life is being stolen from you. She was 11 years old when she was kidnapped. Like, from... You know, your teens to your early 20s, that's like the most formative, or not formative, but like where you do all the stuff you want to do, you know, the Mm -hmm. fun stuff in life. And this is, is completely stolen from her. In 1994, JC became pregnant with her first daughter. Philip talked to her and said that he'd noticed she'd been gaining weight and waddling instead of walking normally. Yeah, so keep in mind, at this point, she was only 14, so she has no idea what the signs are. But this was really a turning point for her. Um, She felt such a connection to the baby inside her, and it really made her feel a purpose to survive. There was an instance while she was pregnant when Philip got paranoid about a raid on his house. He took JC and stuffed her on the floorboards of his car again which was super uncomfortable because she was pregnant. They stayed at a little trailer for the night. Yeah, and JC was super excited when they got there because it was the first time in a long time she was able to actually use a sink with running water and an actual flushing toilet. It just shows how the little things in life we all take for granted were so special to her at this point because she's been Mm -hmm. so neglected and everything... All the comforts of life are being withheld from her. Right. Later, Nancy brought home a cockatiel as she said she rescued. It had super glue stuck to its beak and was missing feathers, so it obviously had a rough life. Aw, I feel so bad for it. I know, I hear you getting emotional talking about the bird. I'm actually just losing my voice. Oh. (laughs) But I am emotional as well. J.C. got really close to the bird and patiently helped the bird go from super paranoid and mean to kind of sweet. She felt really close to the bird, and she named it Sarge. Yeah, and it's because of the way it paced back and forth. It reminded her of an army sergeant. That's really sweet. I know. Nancy would often take Sarge outside for a couple hours a day to get fresh air. It's funny Nancy would do this for the animals, but not for J.C., As winter approached, the days got colder. Nancy wouldn't take Sarge out as much, but one day she thought it would be warm enough. She had the bird outside for a while and forgot about it. The bird was outside for a long time, and J.C. was getting really worried. But finally, Nancy remembered and brought the bird back into J.C.'s room. You think the cats are getting excited because they're talking about a bird? Because they are freaking out right now. I really don't think they are. (laughs) Maybe they hear birds outside. They're, the cats are doing that thing right now where they're, like, chasing each other around and just, like, running way too fast. They're doing their workout laps. Oh, yeah, that's what they <laughs> I thought they did that at, like, 11.30 p.m. usually, but... They have two rounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, getting their exercise. But anyway, when Nancy brought Sarge back in, he looked fine, and he was whistling a lot. So J.C. put a blanket over its cage and went to sleep. The next morning when she woke up, she didn't hear the usual tapping of Sarge's little feet in the cage. Terrified of what she'd find, she removed the blanket and found the bird laying on the bottom of the cage dead. (laughs) Yeah, poor girl can't catch a break with her animals. After all the patience she had to help get this bird over its trauma, you know, and form a relationship with it and make it comfortable with her, all of a sudden it's gone. 
Yeah, that makes you really sad. No. Uh. Well, JC eventually gave birth to her first daughter, and within a couple of years, she was pregnant again. This time, she realized it herself, and when she told Philip about it, he said that he was really happy, and he knows it's going to be another girl, because God knows what he needs. Oh, Gross! What a disgusting thing to say. Like, God is responsible for giving you another girl to abuse? Again, he's blaming everyone but himself. One day, Philip came home with a computer and a printer. He told JC he was going to start a printing company so they could all eventually work from home. He started getting clients, but he wasn't very good at cutting. (laughs) (laughs) Who's not good at cutting? This guy. Okay. JC told him she thought she could do it better, and she did. He took advantage of this and used JC for free labor. JC did all the work for the printing company, and Philip and Nancy both quit their jobs and lived off of JC's work. Uh-huh. And they actually got to a point where they were so lazy, they wouldn't even get out of the bed until a- afternoon. And even though JC was busy at work making sure the printing company stayed afloat and raising her two daughters, these people just mooshed off of her labor. Did she enjoy the work, though? Well, yeah, it it did give her something she was proud of, but it it ate away at her, and she got sick of doing all the work while they were lazy. Eventually, once J.C.'s second daughter was born, Philip told J.C. that Nancy was feeling left out from the family, and that Nancy was going to start being called Mom, and J.C. would become the sister. That's when J.C.'s new name became Alyssa within the household. Yeah, but we're going to keep calling her J.C. because that's her real name. I can't imagine, like, you're the mom and someone tells you, you're going to be the sister now. Yeah. I'm going to be the mom. Like, what the heck did Nancy do? Yeah. Besides dye her hair. The conditions of the house started to fall apart, and the printing business started to dwindle. There was a big puddle of water in the middle of the house, and it turned out that their water pipes were rotting. And the downstairs sink was always backed up with nasty water. They made J.C. drain the backed-up water with a siphon hose at least three times a day, or it would overflow into the basement. Yeah, it was this nasty, thick, black and gray water. It was disgusting living conditions, and it was just another thing they made J.C. do. Mm. So, I mean, at first she was super bored, but it got to a point where, like, she was overwhelmed because she had to do everything. Yeah. Two days before the rescue... On August 24th, 2009, Philip took J.C.'s two daughters along with him to the FBI office in San Francisco. He said having the girls with him made people more apt to listening to what he said. Yeah, so like we talked about last week, he was there to pitch his new church idea for his God's Desire Church. It's just, it's even a weird name. I know, and... (laughs) He wanted to put together an event, so that's why he was talking to the to the uh, um, FBI office, I guess. Um, but this was his next big business idea, since the music thing didn't work out and the printing business was failing. When Philip returned home, he said he met two cops from Berkeley, and they were very interested in what he presented. He said they flipped. Which was a term he used a lot to describe people being excited about something. Oh, I see. Like, yeah, they flipped. <laughs> like that? <laughs> Such like a 70s guy term, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> At this point, Philip thought that this was it. This was his big break. He'd finally be able to move forward with his God's Desire Church and quote-unquote fight for God. <clears throat> The next day, Nancy ran into J.C.'s room and told her that Phil had been arrested and she was freaking out. J.C. stayed calm and suggested they look through the yellow pages to find him a lawyer and a bail bondsman. It's so interesting that J.C. was able to keep a level head while Nancy was flipping out. But J.C. had been through such intense trauma, her perspective was really different. She was really resilient after all she'd been through. And it's impressive that she knew, like, the right things to suggest. I know. A lawyer and a bondsman? Like, wow. I think maybe she had 
a lot of time to watch Law and Order. A lot or something. of Judge Judy. Yeah. A few hours later, Philip walked into the house with his parole officer, who uncuffed him and instructed him to meet back at the parole office the next morning. Philip told the girls that they just needed to show up and clear things up so they could move on with their church plans. Yeah, but as we know from last week, things didn't go as smoothly for Phil as he was planning. The next morning, he had the whole family pile in the car, and on the way to the parole office, he told them that they'd get breakfast on the way home afterward. So he was probably thinking that after this, he'd be able to hide in plain sight because he will have gone into a law enforcement building with the girl he kidnapped and walk out and everything would be cleared up. That's he pretty gutsy. He was literally feeling super chill about the situation. When they arrived, Philip was instantly separated from the girls, and police began to question J.C. She told them that she was the girl's mother, and she was fine with them staying with Phil, even though she knew he was a sex offender. Yeah, this was exactly what Philip had instructed her to say, and she was using the name Alyssa still. But for some reason, when Philip talked to the police... He told them that all three of them were his daughters. Yeah, so this is a hole in the story because he told her, JC, to tell them that they were her daughters and that she gave him permission to be with them, but then he said they were all his his daughters? It's just a really stupid mistake to make. Yeah, that's... <laughs> he, like, totally messed up his own yeah, plan. Yeah, he dug his own grave here. Hmm. And as we know from last week, the two officers were really concerned about these two little girls being with this man, and even more so after looking into the past offenses we talked about at the end of last week's episode. Finally, after digging for hours, Philip finally admitted that J.C. was the girl's mother, and he had kidnapped her at age 11. With this new information, they told J.C. that he'd confessed and asked her what her real name was. Yeah, and... She had been holding it in for so long, she wasn't even able to say it out loud. Wow. She had to write it on a piece of paper. She wrote, J.C. Lee Dugard. So finally, after 18 years of torture, she was free. It's such a long time. And I really want people to think about what a massive amount of time that is. Like I talked about last week, that is the entire lifespan of a high school graduate. Uh, it's like a quarter of most people's lifespan. And you have, may have noticed we didn't talk much about her daughters, but JC's really concerned about their privacy, so we want to respect that, and in case you were wondering why we weren't talking about them. The thing JC wanted more than anything was to talk to her mom again. She missed her so much. And when she finally reached her mom, it was a beautiful reunion. She was so excited to hear from her missing daughter. Yeah. So, this is a very brief outline of JC's book, A Stolen Life. And we tried not to give too many details away because we really encourage you to go read it for yourself and support her. But some of her reflections in the book really stood out to us, and we just want to touch on those. Mm hmm. JC actually collects pine cones now because it was the last thing she touched before she was taken. In her book, she says, No amount of preparation could have helped me understand why a human being would do what he did to me. I still don't get it. Because of her captivity, she still tr struggles with feelings of loneliness even when she's not alone. People and animals help her feel better. She really appreciates each and every day now but deep down, she's still afraid it could be all taken away. Yeah, at the time of her first rape, too, she didn't even know what sex was. Now she feels terrible for that little naive girl, but recognizes that something inside that frightened little girl made her a survivor. She learned how to go away in her mind until he was finished with her, and mm -hmm. helped her survive, because she was only 11 years old. She only had 11 years worth of experience when this all happened to her, but she still survived. When she was first found, she was adamant that she would not write a book. She didn't want anybody to know what happened. With the help of family and therapy, she realized that she could write the book for her own benefit and that she didn't need to feel the need to protect Philip Garrido anymore. Yeah. In the introduction of the book, um, something that really stood out 
was the fact that Philip never took responsibility for what he did to her. Wow. He believed, he, like, he said he believed he was not responsible for his own actions and blamed everything on the angels and the voices in his head and believed that no one should find out what he did to an 11-year-old girl. And I think you highlighted that in your copy of the book. Mm -hmm. But it's like, uh, he must have been schizophrenic or something, you think? I mean, it's not my position to diagnose someone, but I didn't really look into his (laughs) medical diagnosis that much. But Mm -hmm. if he's hearing voices or... My guess is he's just making stuff up to get the responsibility off of himself. Right. Philip was responsible for stealing her life, the life J.C. should have had with her family, and her hope for writing this book was to help someone else going through similar difficult situations. J.C. said that after 18 years of living with tremendous stress, cruelty, loneliness, repetition, and boredom, each day now brings a new challenge and learning experience to look forward to. Yeah, that's something we can all take from this is how much she really appreciates each new day now. You know, it, it helps to hear these stories and put stuff in perspective. But there were a few missed opportunities uh, we want to discuss quickly. First of all, the police failed to make the connection that J.C.'s kidnapping in South Lake Tahoe was related to the 1976 kidnapping of Catherine Calloway, even though it was in the exact same area. Yeah, you think about it. um, It's only 14 years apart. That's not a huge span of time, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he should have been a suspect, especially after being released only three years before this. Remember, he got released super early from prison. He was sentenced to, what was it, 40 years, and he only served 11? Was that right? I thought it was less than that. We talked about it last week. and <laughs> We should it's, know. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're not like a law-based podcast, so I think we can get away with not knowing. But still, it's ridiculous that he got out early and that J.C. was kidnapped only three years after he was, he got his early release. Another missed opportunity happened when the police received a phone call on April 22, 1992, reporting that the caller saw J.C. inside a gas station, staring intently at a missing child poster of herself. Then the caller saw her leave in a large yellow van. After J.C.'s recovery, they found an old yellow Dodge van on Garrido's property. Yeah, so this seems like a good lead, but the caller never gave a license plate number, and the people were gone before the police could get there. But I guess we can learn that it's really important to get license plates when we're noticing suspicious activity, because this could have saved J.C. much sooner. Interestingly, though, J.C. reported that she never left the Garrido property just before, until just before her daughter was born in 1994. But maybe she just forgot to mention this? Yeah, either way, get license plate numbers. It helps. In June of 2002, the fire department actually was called to the Garrido house because of a juvenile that had injured her shoulder in the pool at the home. But it was never relayed to the parole office. Yeah, I can see how the department wouldn't communicate here, but you'd think that all government agencies would have parolees tagged with an alert or something, you know, if they're involved in a 911 call. You'd think something would flag that. Mm -hmm. But I guess government agencies work with crap technology, so I guess this makes sense. It's just frustrating. But this next one is a real doozy. In 2006, a neighbor of the Garritos called 911 to report that there were tents in the backyard and children were living in them. They also said Garrido was a psychotic and had sexual addictions. A deputy responded to the call and talked with Philip Garrido, but he never even went in the door of the house. He talked at the front door for about 30 minutes, but then just left, 
saying it's a code violation for people to live outside on the property. You'd think maybe running a check on the identity of this guy would show that this guy was a parolee? Not, I mean, he's convicted of violent sexual crimes. In 2006, they had a database, didn't they? Like, the officer didn't even go back to check out the actual tents that were reported. He just talked to the guy on the stoop. And I've never interacted with a cop without them asking for my ID and checking to make sure that I don't have any reason to be arrested, you know? Mm -hmm. So it seems weird to me. It just seems like a huge missed opportunity. The Contra Costa County Sheriff actually issued a public apology for this particular incident after J.C.'s rescue. Yeah, which, that's nice, but it's too little too late. There was one last missed opportunity that was probably the biggest issue. Mm -hmm. It was his parole monitoring itself. It turns out that Garrido was not properly classified in the parole system and was labeled as only needing low-level supervision. So there were several lapses by the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. (sighs) This was a violent sexual offender who was originally sentenced to 40 or more years in prison. But in other words, he should have been checked on a lot more often than he was. And... There was even an instance where his parole officer saw the 12-year-old daughter of J.C., but just accepted Garrido's explanation about it. Hmm. Garrido told the officer that she was his brother's daughter, and the officer did nothing to verify it. (sighs) Did this officer even know what this man was originally charged with? He's a violent sexual offender. Wow. So... That's it for missed opportunities that we get know of, but it's really frustrating to know that he was on parole. He was supposed to have no contact with underage people, and he was supposed to stay within 25 miles of his home, which he rarely did, mm-hmm. but he wasn't, he wasn't checked on very often by the parole office. Anyway, enough of this garbage about Philip Garrido. Let's talk about JC now and the difference she's making. She's founded um, the Jace. I believe that's how she pronounced it. Jace. JC? No, she pronounced it Jace okay. Foundation. Um, so it's at the jacefoundation.org. That's the J A Y C foundation.org so if you want to go check it out that's the link and we'll put it in the show notes of this episode Mm -hmm. but do you want to talk about what that is sure the foundation's message is just ask yourself to care so she cleverly used her initials yeah or i guess name letters the mission is to be of service to families that have suffered a familiar or non-familiar abduction or other trauma. To spread the message of compassion and awareness through educational programs. To encourage the collaboration of various entities to provide protected spaces for families to heal. We believe that families heal best from within, but they need assistance to accomplish this. We connect families to support and services they need in order to recover from the abduction or other traumatic events, and in many cases, provide the funding for these services. Our funding comes through private donations and sales from our website store. We also serve families who have lost a member in service to our country, who are reconnecting after a separation caused by military deployment, or who have experienced a loss loss after military post-traumatic suicide. The Jace Foundation provides services by utilizing treatment programs that focus on healing through traditional therapy along with animal therapy. What's that word? Equine. I believe that means horse therapy. Oh, equine therapy or other experimental therapy. That's not the right word. Equine? Experience. Oh, the... Is that a typo? Experiential. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. This comprehensive approach brings families together with treatment programs designed especially for them 
and their unique circumstances. I think by experiential therapies, it means like having interesting experiences mm -hmm. together, you know, to oh, make good okay. memories. I got you know? it. Mm -hmm. We also offer training to law enforcement officers so others can learn from our experience. We have been asked and are happy to present our ideas to groups of interested agencies and professionals countrywide. Yeah, so providing a lot of practical and useful tools mm -hmm. and services to help with these cases that, you know, it's important. And she knows, you know, what a recovering kidnap victim or, you know, survivors of abuse need. Mm -hmm. So it's cool that she's doing this. Um, but yeah, that that's pretty much it for the J.C. Lee Dugard story. So. Wow. Yeah, it's a it's a big story. Again, we want to thank Liz for suggesting it for us. Um, yeah, it's it's a huge story. It's such a large chunk of her life that she lost, and it's a lot to think about. But that brings us to the review portion of our show, which we forgot to do last week. Oh, we did. Yeah. Oh, you're right. I've been dropping the ball, man. I had an emotional couple weeks after recording episode fifty-two. If you haven't heard it yet, it's no, my personal I story. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been a little bit off, but doing well. Actually, Kate on Ignorance Was Bliss released an episode. Her last episode, I think it was one twenty-four, with Tony Plas from. Uh, the Dirty Bits podcast, talking about the same thing I talked about. And she has her own experience with it, Tani. Mm -hmm. And it was really cool to hear her story and her perspective. Um, you know, because it's a different monster to everybody, but it's really something that a lot of people don't want to talk about. And I liked what Kate said. I had a revelation that I never really thought about before, but... Kate said a lot of people compare it to a drug addiction, but when you recover from a drug addiction, like, you know, you have to actively seek it out to get it. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot more of a choice. But when you're addicted to food, that's something that's always there. It's, it's an everyday thing that everyone is always having. So, and it's a necessity to life. You constantly have to live with being around what you're addicted to and, mm -hmm. So that's what makes it different from drug addiction. And so thank you, Kate, for pointing that out, because I hadn't even thought about it like that before. But go listen to that. It's really good. And if you haven't heard my story, uh, you can check that out, episode 52. But I'll read this review that we just got yesterday. Actually, I guess Saturday. Mm -hmm. It's called Aptly Named Podcast. And it said, I listen to many, many podcasts. Most of them are related to true crime in some way. The thing that makes Ryan and Rosie stand out is the empathy they show for the victims. Most true crime podcasts are perpetrator-focused, how they grew up, what their motivations were, etc. I like those podcasts just as much as the next guy, but it is ref refreshing to listen to a show where the concern is for those people who often become footnotes in their own murders or abuse. Thank you, Ryan and Rosie. Thank you, uh, Strike and Soda or Strick and Soda 03. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you got it. I never know how to pronounce names and stuff, but <laughs> do you have anything else to say? Yeah, I wanted to say thank you to Mayba, who sent us a really nice email. I think you said it right, too. I hope so. Maybe she'll let us know. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, she gave us, she typed out she the did. spelling, so hopefully. Yes. She or she sent us such a nice email and just talked about how much she appreciated Ryan's story. And she even talked about how she appreciated my story. Oh. Yeah, I wanted it to. It was really sweet. Maybe I really appreciated your message. It was very mm -hmm. sweet of you. And those messages letting us know how what we talk about impacted you, they mean a lot to us. So never feel like. You shouldn't send a message because you're like, oh, they don't have time or they won't be able to respond. You know, we'll eventually get to every message and we appreciate all of them. And we always 
reply to anything we get. So Mava said that she laughs and cries with us. She loves our couple dynamic and our chemistry. So we appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for your kind words and support. Yeah. Thank you, Rosie, for bringing that up. Oh, it, shucks. <laughs> it, it did make my day when, I, when we got it. Mm-hmm. But I suppose we could wrap it up. It's getting to be pretty long episode. But if you do enjoy our show, we'd love if you supported us on Patreon, where you can get four bonus episodes, and we'll be releasing one per month normally unless something comes up but and then there's also cool stuff you can get like coffee mugs stickers yeah magnets postcards with a personal message from us Mm -hmm. so if any of that sounds cool to you definitely think about supporting us yeah and be sure to give us a five-star review so we'll share your review on our show yeah good idea (laughs) also we're on instagram at vov podcast and Twitter at VOVpod. And if you want to email us, it's VOVpodcast at gmail.com. And all those links will be in the description below. Okay. All right. Yep. Wait, description? This isn't YouTube. The show notes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, Ready for tacos? I am tired. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, thank you all for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Everybody has a story, and not all of those stories are clear black and white issues, even when we think they are. We wonder, how did this happen? Or what is that like? Or what happens next? Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss at IWB Podcast. If you're looking for an in-depth, detailed, academic analysis of the past, devoid of any comedy or entertainment value presented by an educated historian with a PhD. This isn't the show for you. Hi, I'm Tawny Plattis, a professional voiceover actor who gives a very casual, very Southern Californian, and hopefully very comedic retelling of the sexy, scandalous, and salacious stories from history your teacher probably left out on my podcast, The Dirty Bits. Catch the show on tawnyvoice.com or anywhere podcasts are found. Chat soon, lovebug.